Welcome to another inspirational teaching from the Neighborhood Church. We pray that you be blessed by it. Number of months, we have been looking at the Epistle to Romans. In the first 11 chapters, Paul gives a discourse on salvation and God's righteousness. He leaves us in no doubt at all that man is lost, devastated by sin, and exposed to the wrath of a holy God. But God has provided the remedy through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We are justified, that is, declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God, by faith, not by works. And we enter into a relationship with him. Then he inserts a section on the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And in these three chapters, he destroys the replacement theology error. Israel has not been set aside by God. The church has not replaced Israel as the recipient of God's promises to Israel. Indeed, end times events will center on Israel. The second section builds on the first, and here we see the application of salvation. Salvation, the event, is totally God's work, but we are to work out our salvation practically through our lives. So let's just read the first 12 verses of Romans chapter 12, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then different gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry. Let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And the verse that we're going to be dealing with today, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's very clear that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. That is, we're to live sacrificially, 
And the apostle describes that as a rational act. And we're not to be conformed to this world, or as the Phillips translation puts it, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Rather, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In this way, we will discover what God's good and acceptable and perfect will is for our lives. And the apostle in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us what that is. God's intention is that we are to become like Jesus. Our lives and actions should reflect what it means to be a follower of him. And it should be visible to others that something has happened and is happening in our lives. We are different as believers from what we once were. And key to that is how we think, and as Pastor John has been reminding us, you can't live right if you don't think right. So two words are used in verse 2. He talks about the con being conformed and transformed. The conformed mind, according to the Webster Dictionary, now listen to this, has the same shape, outline, or contour to what is around us, is similar or identical to it, is obedient or compliant to it, adapts itself to prevailing standards or customs. As believers in Jesus, we can become just like the world in our thinking and actions. The transformed mind, on the other hand, is one that has undergone a change in composition or structure. It has changed in character or condition, and in brackets, the dictionary inserts the word convert. So transformation is an act, process, or instance of transforming or being transformed. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that begins at conversion in the believer. And it continues throughout our lives. But notice that the warning about being conformed to this world is directed at believers. We are not immune to it. And that is the direction that our enemy continually attempts to drive us in. The transformed mind thinks counterculturally, but our enemy wants us to fit into culture, accepting what the prevailing ideas might be. And morally, the direction of culture is downward. We live in an age when the former landmarks of acceptable behavior have not just been moved, but have largely been removed by existing cultural pressures. I don't need to convince you of this. You just need to turn on your television or open your newspaper. And you know that that is true. Paul describes the how the transformed mind thinks and acts. And its foundation is love. Everything springs out of love. Love for God and love for one another and for the world around us. 
and accepts the reality that to live this way, we have to present our bodies as living sacrifices, which we can only do as we submit ourselves to the leading, the direction, and empowering of the Holy Spirit. Self-effort will not do it, although the will is involved. So he shows us how the believer is to handle the matter of spiritual gifts. We're not to be puffed up as we exercise our gifts. Then beginning in verse 9, he describes 25 specific behaviors of someone who has a transformed mind. And over the last few weeks, we have seen that love is to be without hypocrisy. We're to abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, give preference to one another, not lag in diligence, but remain fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord. So we come to verse 12, where the next triplet of graces and behaviors are identified, rejoicing in hope, patient, or rather persevering in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. There is a connection among these three our lives will be joyful, hopeful, and patient in proportion as they are prayerful. Hope, if it is certain, is a source of gladness. True joy is not a matter of temperament. It's a matter of faith. It's not a product of circumstances. A Christian who rightly understands and cherishes the Christian hope is lifted above temperament and is not dependent upon conditions for his joys. This is the difference between happiness and joy. Joy is the root word of rejoicing and is a fruit of the Spirit. In the biblical context, it is not an emotion. It is an attitude of heart. Happiness is an emotion and temporary, affected by and dependent on the changing circumstances of life. Happiness is a creature of circumstances and so goes up and down and comes and goes. It's not that hope in itself is the object of the Christian's joy. See, every year for the last 52 years, once I discovered what Canadian football was all about, I had watched it my first night in Saskatchewan on a television set, and I saw these bodies coming on and off the field. I didn't have a clue what it meant. But over the years, I got to enjoy Canadian football. It's actually the wrong word. Soccer is actually football. But every year over these last 50 years, as the football season has opened, I have hoped that the Saskatchewan Rough Riders would win the Grey Cup. 
Well, it's happened twice in the last 52 years. You might describe that hope as forlorn hope. But don't tell me that because the new season is just a couple of months away. The Christian hope is not dependent on circumstances. Rather, it's dependent and centered in a person. It's not affected by the changing circumstances of life. Hope lifts us out of our present difficult circumstances. And because it's based in Jesus, rejoicing is the inevitable result. So what is biblical hope based on? Prophet Micah, in chapter 7, verse 7, says, Therefore I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The correct way to hope and wait for the Lord is to steadfastly expect his mercy, his salvation, and his rescue. And while waiting, not to take matters into one's own hand. In Psalm 39, verse 7, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Psalm 71, 5, For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust for my youth. Colossians 1, 27, the apostle says, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Then he tells us what it is, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then Titus 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. It is hope in a person the person of Jesus Christ and his blood-bought promises. He is the one who enables us to rejoice amidst all the changing circumstances of life. At the time this was written, the apostle and his fellow believers had little to rejoice about. But according to Philippians 4 and verse 4, they rejoiced in the Lord always. He was an ever-present reality to them, and he should be to us. The hymn writer declared, Now none but Christ can satisfy, none other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy, Lord Jesus, found in thee. He is the one who sustains us through the tribulations that come our way in life and enables us to persevere. There are some who teach that as believers we should experience no difficulties in life. We should sail through it untouched by anything that touches others. Just name it and claim it, we are told, and it will be yours. But Jesus declared... In the world, you will have tribulation. But then he adds, but take heart, 
I have overcome the world. And Peter declares, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Then he goes on to say, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Don't give up on God. Persevere in the midst of trials, and he will see you through. James wrote this, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Some of you have faced, and others are facing severe trials, tribulation and difficulties in your lives this morning. My intention is not to minimize the pain that you are experiencing as a family, we have had our share of heartache, and we know what it feels like. Well-meaning fellow believers with the best intentions sometimes act and talk inappropriately in these times, quoting scripture to comfort. But these scriptures can come across as platitudes in the midst of our pain. Let me tell you from personal experience that the best approach is to offer a shoulder to lean on, a comforting hug, and a listening ear. Sometimes it's best to put a break on your tongue. Jesus experienced suffering. The writer of Hebrews states, for it was fitting for him, that's the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through sufferings. Then he goes on to say in verse 18 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, For in that he himself, Jesus, has suffered being tested, he is able to help those who are being tested. Then he goes on to say, talking about Jesus, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And Paul was no stranger to trials and suffering. Listen to his testimony in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 
to 28. This is him talking about what he's experienced. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often, from the Jews I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Friends, when Paul calls us to persevere in tribulation, he's not talking theoretically or theologically. He's talking from personal experience. So what does Paul learn to do in the midst of tribulation? Here's his answer. One thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is how the one whose mind and thinking have been transformed by the Holy Spirit handles adversity. And so as he approaches the end of his life, Paul is able to state without presumption, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. The trials and tribulations of this life are real and painful. So how can I remain joyful and persevere in the midst of all of that? And Paul gives the answer, continuing steadfastly in prayer. So let me ask us all a question. Do you and I pray, or do we just say our prayers? Someone has said, many of us, perhaps most of us, pray just enough to ease the conscience, but not enough to win any decisive victory. What is prayer? W.H. Griffith Thomas in his commentary on the book of Romans, writes the following. Prayer means power because it links us to the fount of power, God himself. Scripture and prayer are frequently associated in the New Testament because in the one God speaks to us and in the other we speak to God. With the channels of the spiritual life thus open at both ends and clear all the way through, we receive grace for daily living, 
from the God of all grace and find ourselves enabled to fulfill the will of God and live lives well-pleasing to him. Prayer is talking to the God we know, the God who is present and who cares. Communication is the essence of relationship. And this is how we get to know the God who loves us and cares deeply about us and walks with us through the life's sometimes painful journey. But prayer doesn't come easily. Another commentator, Denny, describes it as a habit so much above nature. Why is that? Why is it difficult to pray? Commenting on Romans 15.30, for Paul says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. Griffith Thomas states, Prayer is here shown to be a struggle. For the word strive is used as of an athletic contest. And he goes on to say this, and you've experienced it and so have I. There are hostile powers to be faced whenever prayer is offered. Prayer is serious business and is the Christian's vital breath. Instead of being the easiest, it is the hardest work of the Christian because principalities and powers of evil combine to oppose the progress of the soul in prayer and thereby to hinder the divine answers. See, prayer is not just the preparation for the battle. It is itself the battle. For it is the means by which we develop our relationship with God and enter into conversation with him, expressing to him the deepest desires of our heart. And this our enemy tries to resist. So Paul calls us to continue steadfastly in prayer. The word steadfast means resolutely or dutifully firm and unwavering, committed, devoted, fixed in place, undeviating constancy, loyal support that will endure strain. So let me ask us again, do we pray or do we just say our prayers? Do we know what it is to enter into persistent, persevering, insistent, prevailing prayer? Like me, you have probably heard the voice of the enemy whispering, what's the point? Do you really think things are going to change? Why don't you just give up? Well, that is the push towards conformed thinking, 
But the mind that has been transformed by the Holy Spirit has learned that there are rewards for steadfast prayer. In Second Chronicles 7.14, we read the words of God himself. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. This promise was fulfilled to those who gathered together here in Saskatoon in the early 70s. They claimed this promise, and God visited them in revival power, transforming them and sending them out to a needy world beyond. Some of you may have been a part of that. Carol and I were not walking with the Lord at the time, but that event was prophesied in a church just three buildings away from where we lived. Someone wrote the following, when you feel the tension mounting and across the busy day, only gloomy clouds are drifting as you start to worry, pray. So how does the person whose mind has been transformed by the Holy Spirit think and act? The poet Oliver Goldsmith, in his poem, The Deserted Village, describes the village preacher, someone whose mind has been transformed. His ready smile, a parent's warmth expressed. Their welfare pleased him and their cares distressed. To them his heart, his love, his griefs were given. But all his serious thoughts had rest in heaven. As some tall cliff that lifts its awful form swells from the vale and midway leaves the storm, Though round its breast the rolling clouds are spread, eternal sunshine settles on its head. Is that your experience? So what do we take away from all of this? Well, the Holy Spirit has been saying to me over the last few weeks as I've been preparing this, I think it's been saying to me that people whose minds are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, and that's me and that's you if you're a believer, who are discovering that you can't live right if you don't think right, are learning as well that we can rejoice in hope in the midst of the most difficult circumstances because that hope is placed in the person of Jesus Christ who enables us to persevere in the face of the most difficult trials, the one we can and must go to in prayer, knowing that he not only hears our prayers, but he answers them. He's real. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. 
and assures us that although we will experience trials and tribulation in this life, he has overcome the world and will walk with us through every circumstance of life, giving us victory right through to the valley of the shadow of death itself and beyond. And along the way, he whispers to us, it's me, Jesus, don't be afraid. Wherever you are on the journey of faith this morning, I encourage you, don't give up. But like Paul, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You are not walking alone. Even if you are experiencing the dark night of the soul, as some of you may be this morning, Jesus is walking with you. There might be someone here this morning who's saying you've been talking to believers in Jesus, people who know Jesus personally. But I don't know him personally. And I'm experiencing really tough times in life. Is there an answer for me? And the answer is yes. And the answer is the same. The answer is Jesus. Almost 39 years ago, Carol and I, sitting in a meeting like this, heard the preacher who was actually preaching from Romans and had been for the weeks that we had been attending the church, said again, you have to make a conscious choice. What is the choice? The choice that we made that morning was that we finally recognized that we were, in fact, sinners. We were far from God. The things that we were chasing after to provide pleasure and fulfillment and meaning in our lives, it just hadn't happened because we were looking in the wrong direction. And that morning, we realized in a powerful way that the answer to our struggle and search was Jesus, the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins and to save us from our sins, and the one who rose again from the dead on the third day and broke the power of sin in our lives. So here was the choice we had. Are you going to reach out your hand and accept the gift that he's offering you? The gift is eternal life, not just freedom from your sins and the penalty of your sins, but eternal life, life that never ends. Or will you say no? Or perhaps not this morning, but maybe some other time. If the Holy Spirit is talking to you this morning, and you know that what I'm saying is true, then I urge you, make that conscious choice. 
Say yes to Jesus and receive from him the gift of eternal life, the gift that will never end. You say to me, well, I'd like to do that, but how do I do it? Well, it's very simple. It's not easy. But it's very simple. I just talk to him. I pray to him. And I say these words to him. And it might be that this morning you want to follow me in the words that I'm going to express to God. And the words are simply these. If you close your eyes, just repeat them in the silence of your heart. Just say this, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that I can do nothing about it myself to change that fact and that condition. But you died on the cross for me. You paid the penalty for all of my sins. You rose again from the dead to break the power of sin in my life. And this morning you're offering me the gift of eternal life. I need eternal life. I need meaning and purpose in life. And this morning I realize that I can find that only in the Lord Jesus. So I'm reaching out my hand to receive your gift, the gift of eternal life. I thank you for giving it to me. I receive it and I accept it with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it, then tell someone. The Christian life is not a life that we live on our own. We need our Christian brothers and sisters around us to help us as we walk this life. And so don't leave without telling someone that this morning you gave your life to Jesus. We're going to open up these altars to allow you to spend time in prayer. And if you feel led to come and just uh, spend time in prayer, just do that. And if you need someone to pray with you, then pray. I'm looking around for musicians, but they're not here. So, the service is over, but it's time for prayer. And I'll be sitting down here if you want to talk to me. And then in just a few minutes, you will be dismissed. Pastor John says, we've had church. Now go and be the church. So when you feel led to go, go, but make sure that you go to be the church. We know you enjoyed this teaching from the Neighborhood Church from our Pine House location here in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. To touch base with us from anywhere in the world that you're listening, or maybe you're just at the gym or in your car, you can text the word Pine House to 306-800-5296. There you can fill out our digital connect card. Or if you want to give it a distance, or maybe you've been working weekends or just can't make it to the city, text the initials TNC to 
through that little portal you can give or tithe or even give to missions. For any more information about The Neighborhood Church, you can check us out online at theneighborhoodchurch.org. God bless you and have a great week.